Listen on as I read Malachi chapter 1 verse 6 to the end of the chapter. Malachi as four chapters uh, will be a quick study. It is possible in reading uh, commentary on Malachi, uh, especially Calvin's commentary, he keeps referencing, it's either Haggai or Zechariah and it's really piqued my interest. I'm, I'm, I'm just confessing we may have one, one more short study before we get back uh, to Leviticus. Uh, but the plan remains the same to work through the Pentateuch eventually. Uh, so Malachi, chapter 1, verse 6. As a, a son honors his father and a servant his master, if I them am, uh, if then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you by saying the Lord of the table is contemptible? And when you offer the blind a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While uh, while this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord? Who is there even among you who would shut the door so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And every place incense shall be offered in my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. And uh, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Shall I accept this from your hand, says the Lord. Of, of, uh, says the Lord. But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow. But the Lord, but the sacrifices to the Lord, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, uh, the burden of the word of the Lord through the prophet Malachi. We pray that it might be such to us uh, now through the preaching, and not only in the preaching, but also in the hearing, that together we might be burdened with your burden. And that is the burden of sin and the burden as well of holiness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the ways that you might look at the book of Malachi is as a series of rebukes. And we come here to the second rebuke in this long series of rebukes. There's also a note of prophecy, as we'll see. Here we see Malachi fixes his attention on the priests. And we ought to see... That each rebuke is like a new burden, an additional burden that is being placed upon the shoulders of the people for them to bear, uh, much like we find Christian at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress. A burden which uh, at once seized the prophet's heart and filled him uh, with zeal to the Lord, but also, as I say, which was meant to arrest the hearts of the people. And so a burden which the people must bear, bear or else be forsaken by the Lord by their lack of repentance. Now, what was the burden of the Lord, the second burden which they were meant to bear? It was a burden that God would be worshipped in a manner worthy of his name. 
Which brings us back to Exodus, doesn't it? That being the main emphasis of the book and the main sin that we see being committed, that he was not worshipped in a manner worthy of his name. It wasn't that they didn't worship, it's that they worshipped wrongly, as uh, the, the incident of the golden calf highlights so well. And so God uh, is, is burdening his minister, his prophet, with the message that his ordinance ought to be honored by his people and especially his ministers. There is a special sin in view here when his ministers uh, treat his ordinances as a vain and a trifling thing. Well, God says, stop it. Stop treating the things which I have ordained as though they hardly matter at all. Stop treating me as your God worse than you treat other men. And, and, and there is just uh, such an obvious and clear reference or relevance, I mean, for the church today. So this is why Malachi is such a useful book. And I've, I've always felt that way in my own reading of the Bible. Malachi speaks directly to our own day. Malachi is speaking to a people who were careless in worship. Now, I don't think that I'm speaking to a people who are careless in worship, but I think I know the reason that most of you ended up in this church, and it's because that's what you saw all around you. And you asked yourself, uh, you were burdened, you might say, of what uh, the prophet was here burdened by, and that is, where can I find people who are concerned to worship God in a manner which is worthy of his name? And I always say, just to be clear, that we are not a faithful church. I don't ever say that, at least. I would never ascribe that to us, but that we're trying to be. That's our goal. Our goal is to be a faithful church, just like my goal is to be a faithful minister and your goal is to be a faithful Christian. But as Malachi begins this rebuke, beginning in verse 6, he begins once more by pointing out their ingratitude. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. It's just the same sin that we saw last time, the sin of ingratitude, where he says, I have loved you. And they said, where have, uh, or, or how was it? Let me see. Uh, they said, in what way have you loved us? which we saw was uh, really the most heartbreaking thing God's people could ever say to accuse the Lord of being unloving. And so God says, does not a son love his or, or honor his father and does not a servant fear his master? Yes, but if God is both to them, as was evident in the prior passage, God indeed was the God of his people. He was the father and he was their Lord. But if he was so, where then was his honor and where was his reverence? We see here something that God will say again in this passage. And that is that Israel standing in the special relation with God treated him worse than the sons of men treat their fathers and masters. At least the fathers uh, and masters of men are deemed worthy of honor and reverence. But too often the prophet says God's people do not esteem their God as worthy of the same. And by this God intimated that the people could not be bridled by any consideration to obedience or reverence or right worship. Neither by a consideration of the goodness of a father or the severity of a master. Neither of these things constrained into them uh, a willing heart to, uh, to obey and to worship him. But in the second part of verse 6 he turns to the priests to you, priests who despise my name. So the sin of the priests was that they despised the name of the Lord. And the focus here becomes the priests. It will be for some time. For they as stewards of the true and pure religion 
ought to have done better. They of all people ought to have, well, what is the reverse of despising God's name? I suppose uh, they ought to have honored and esteemed his name. And they ought especially as the teachers of Israel, in Israel's newly found place in Jerusalem, to instilled in the people a newfound, uh, a newfound sense of the propriety of true religion, biblical religion. But instead what we find is that these men indulge the sin of the people and themselves, promoting a careless kind of religion. The very people God set up to restrain the sinful tendency in the people uh, really was, it was the opposite. And thus, instead of overseeing a religious revival, they oversaw a religious decline and they participated in it. When God says they despise his name, he means they treat it as a light thing. They fail to honor it as they should, particularly as we will see with regard to worship, not just in their daily living, but especially in the temple. And it was there, above all, that the honor due his name ought to be evident in in the old covenant, in the temple, and in the new covenant, in uh, our Sabbath worship. But rather than worshiping him with reverence and awe, they showed contempt for his name by performing their religious services in a careless fashion. It was carelessness in worship that was equivalent to despising the name of God. And thus, by their careless and irreverent worship, they despised God and they despised his law. They were breaking his law, even as they pretended to keep it. And yet we see how they would excuse themselves as before. Earlier they said, uh, well, I don't think actually they were excusing themselves so much as they were condemning God. In what way have you loved us? They were at least excusing uh, themselves for not honoring their Lord. But here the excuse is more explicit where they say, in what way have we despised your name? Earlier it was, in what way have you loved us? But now, in what way have we despised you? They were protesting as though they were innocent, which is uh, as common as the world. You accuse a man in his sin and the first thing he does. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. The unbeliever uh, or even the so-called believer in his sin is full of excuses. And yet the tragedy is is that he is without excuse and he doesn't see it. Again, Romans chapters 1 and 2. But here were men who thought that they had performed their religious duties as priests. And because of this they were excused. Now this is a point I'll return to in in verse 7. But let us look at that verse now. Here was their crime. You have offered defiled food on my altar, but say, uh, well, uh, actually, I'll stop there. Uh, You have offered, you offered defiled food on my altar. So here was their crime. It wasn't that they didn't make the offering. It was that they made the offerings in a careless fashion again. They were offering that which was defiled, showing a spirit of neglect and contempt for God's worship. What does it matter, they said, so long as there is any offering? And here we see, I think, what is really the embodiment of uh, what, is, uh, what is found in most churches today. The spirit in which modern worship occurs. And the thought, in essence, seems to be that it doesn't matter how God is worshipped so long that he is worshipped. Why the fuss? Why are some of you... Why are some of you so burdened about this, like Malachi? The spirit of the priest was this. Better something than nothing. Why all the fuss? 
But this ignores a crucial fact. And that is you would be better doing nothing than sinning. And there's hardly any sin God hates more than idolatry. If there's any message that we could summarize the Old Testament under, it would be this fact. God's desire to be worshipped truly and his hatred for idolatry. And yet the amazing thing is that we find, again, that this sin is as old as the world. That man has always been neglecting God's worship and in doing this excusing himself. Again, why the fuss? Don't you see that we're worshipping God? Why do you have to be such a nitpicker? And really it would seem that there were few Malachi's in any, day, in any age. Few who actually took pains to worship God in a way that he asked to be worshipped. One of the things that I've been impressed uh, with recently in my study of Presbyterianism is just once again the defense of the reformers. Why, why was their theology of worship and why are their liturgies worth re- returning to? It's because these were men who were steeped in scripture, they were steeped in the gospel, and these were men who understood what it was to worship God. And they have a great deal to say to the church today, especially in a church which is a modern setting, which has admittedly become negligent in its worship. But again, they ask, is not a careless worship better than no worship? And here God says you're playing a dangerous game. If you think I am pleased with those who pretend to love me when they hate me. This will come out more as we go on. So let us go on. The situation was in essence this. The people were to bring their offerings. And they were bringing offerings that were not suitable. They did not meet the requirements of God's law. And here was a chance for the priest to instruct the people. In their folly and their error, refusing the offerings, saying these offerings are not acceptable. But instead, what do we find among the priests? And what is the word that captures the church in decline in our own day and in Malachi's day? Compromise. They were faced with a dilemma and they compromised. Again, better something than nothing. We'll offer defiled offerings. At least there is something to offer. And so this becomes uh, an amazing but also a terrifying picture of the way that the irreligion of the people gets blended with the minister. And both uh, play their part in the downfall of the church. Not just the minister. Don't just blame him. Calvin does a great job of saying uh, throughout uh, his exposition of these verses that if you understand the the mechanism by which the offerings are being uh, given to the people or to the priests, I mean, you would understand the way this really was a rebuke of the priests and the people together. And that's what compromise in the church looks like. For the people are typically ignorant and careless with respect to God's word. They need to be instructed. They need their sin to be checked. They need God's ministers to stand at the door. But if God's ministers do not have a heart to tell the people that the worship or their ideas about worship are not acceptable in the sight of God, then who will? The answer is no one, obviously. And and so the sad reality becomes that the minister is only there to reinforce the sinful ideas and the impiety of the people. And it becomes a kind of vicious cycle. But look at the middle of the verse where we see again they excuse themselves. What are you talking about? In what way have we defiled you, they say? 
So often you tell a man what is plainly true, but he simply won't accept it. Rare is the man who will accept a rebuke in humility and with a smile on his face. Too often he says, what are you talking about? In what way have we done this? Excuses abound in the people who do not accept God's law as their rule. And yet he says, they are without excuse, as Paul. Calvin, commenting on this verse, says, it is the same today. Everyone absolves himself. I like that. Everyone absolves himself. I don't like that people do that. I just like that summary statement. And I suppose it's the same in every day. Everyone absolves himself. No man is with fault. Or at least there are few who will bear this burden. And that is to say, few who will honestly acknowledge his own disdain for God's name when he fails to worship him aright. You know, when I didn't worship God rightly in that, in that moment or in that day or in that year, what I was really doing and what was really in my heart was a hatred for God himself. I confess it. No, you tell him, you know, this kind of worship is not fitting for a God such as ours. But he says, in what way? What are you talking about? And so I say again, this kind of thing goes back well before our own day. It's as old as the world. The prophets ever contending for true worship. And always it seems contending in vain, or at least mostly. I won't say always. But you see, the answer really is plain enough. You offer defiled food on my altar, or you say, not actually, but by your actions, the table of the Lord is contemptible. They despise God's name by despising his worship, by performing his worship in a careless and a neglectful fashion. You know how this happens. It isn't easy, it isn't difficult, I mean, to see the relevance of the message of Malachi for today. The careless worshiper, the person who really would rather not be there, the person who can't wait for the service to end and who frankly dreads its coming, the person who yawns endlessly during the service, the person who is visibly disinterested in the preaching, the person who keeps looking back at the clock, the person who falls asleep or who can't stop scrolling on his phone, or the minister, that is the man who stands up performing the service, remember Malachi is speaking primarily to the priest, but not only to the priest, the minister who stands up unprepared and just goes through the motion in a careless and a heartless fashion. The man who simply isn't taking it seriously. Oh, says the prophet here, you aren't fooling anyone. When you protest that you really don't know what we're talking about, you only show how deceived you've become. And so Calvin says, let me quote him again. Nothing is indeed so precious to God as his worship. But the question that we ought to ask and that the prophet is asking us to ask ourselves is whether we acknowledge that and whether we share that conviction. Do we understand that nothing is indeed so precious to God as as his worship? The truth is, sadly, too often people do not think any crime has been committed by a careless and a lawless worship. Of course, they do not actually say the table is contemptible, the end of verse 7, 
but their actions prove otherwise. Just as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when they were, uh, they were fighting at the table of the Lord, and some were eating and others were going hungry, and he says, when you come together, it isn't to observe the Lord's Supper. You're just satisfying your bellies. You're going through the motions in a worldly fashion, in a careless fashion, and it hardly deserves to be called anything other than a worldly and a carnal festival. You're despising the Lord that you were meant to discern and to honor and to worship and receive from. We just keep noticing the sin is as old as the world. You find it in the days of the prophet. Sadly, you find it in the days of the New Testament and you find it today. This is ever a relevant message. But don't you see, he says, going on, verse, verse 8, when you offer the sacrifices blind, is it not evil? When you offer the layman sick, is it not evil? Don't you see that the thing is evil? How do you fail to see the wickedness of such a thing? As though God is not blasphemed. And is it not clear, he says at the end of the verse, that you are treating me worse than you treat men? That is worse uh, than your governors, God says. Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? And so there you see the emphasis again. God saying, do you think men are pleased or fooled by a careless service or offering? Or, or might they rather feel mocked and disdained? And do you think that because God is in heaven and is a spiritual being that he does not see or he does not care? Oh, the impiety of treating God worse than man. What an insult to his majesty. And yet it is and always has been the common crime of the people to give to man what they will not give to God. And so God says to make the matter clear, I will no more accept you than a governor would. Verse 9. No, I have no pleasure in you, verse 10. Neither will I accept what you offer. Now the matter is made clear for their stubborn ears and hard hearts. And we need to hear this. This is a message that every body of believers needs to hear in every age. And that is that God does not accept false worship. He is not impressed. He is not pleased. He hates it. He rejects it. He has no pleasure in the careless worship of a careless people. They may satisfy themselves in doing so and even excuse themselves, but they miss the great thing, and that is in worshiping God, whether he is pleased. And did anyone ever think to ask that question? Not whether I was satisfied or uplifted, but whether God was pleased and whether he found the worship that we offered to be a strange fire or an acceptable sacrifice of praise. That is the great thing, beloved. To offer up spiritual songs and sacrifices that are pleasing and acceptable to him. And don't act as though scripture is silent on this matter. And yet how few there are who stop to think of such things. And whether perhaps God has anything to say about the matter. Whether God ever instructed his church in the manner by which he would be worshipped. Whether he ever prescribed the kind of worship that would meet the standard. Of an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice. But to take the matter farther. God says in verse 11. 
that his name is too great to be confined in one place. From the, for from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. My name is too great to be confined to one place, God says. And certainly, my name is too great to remain where it is not honored. And so here God predicts through the prophet Malachi the rejection of the Jews, which we see just after Christ's own day. And we see it hinges here as ever in the Old Testament in the sin of idolatry or false worship. But do not think, God says, that you are robbing God of anything or that God is somehow beholden to you if he would get worship for himself. God was not a debtor to the Jews. No, he says, I am great in all the earth. And I can just as easily find worship that is pure and pleasing from one people as another. And that, uh, as I just said, is precisely what we find after this prophet. That the Jews in rejecting Jesus and the ministry of the apostles are rejected themselves. And what is the result Well, the result is precisely what the prophet says here. It is that the greatness of God now is seen in all of the earth. That the rejection of the Jews was uh, to the prophet of the whole world. And now God uh, is worshipped purely and truly by all kinds of people. Not by just one kind. And here too, I would think of this prophecy as a kind of burden. A burden to the prophet and a burden to the faithful. Though there were few in Israel in those days, still there were few. And how they must have burned in their hearts with the anticipation for the fulfillment of this promise. Living in days where God's worship was adulterated. But here being promised that the days would come when God would be worshipped by all kinds of people with a right worship. What a glorious day that would be. God's worship extending into all the world. And thus we see. Further reason to praise God. That God would, as he always does, turn even sin to his advantage, getting greater glory for himself. Those who would rob God of his worship only succeed in getting him greater glory. It really was a wonderful promise for the large-hearted faithful in those days, the broad churchmen of the Old Testament, who looked forward to the engrafting of the Jews. Looking forward in their days to those who would worship with a pure offering, whether in the days of the apostles or in the days of the reformers, or even, let us say, to some extent in our own day, that we are living in the fulfillment of this promise. God's uh, promise to find the thing which is most precious to him, even his own worship, among all kinds of people. But still, as in the days of the apostles, so in the days uh, of Malachi, There were those who defiled God's table. Verse 12, we see this again. But you profane it. In that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And its fruit, its food is contemptible. What is worse? Verse 13. They treat worship as a kind of burden. It's something that wearies. You also say, oh, what weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. The truth is, if you're honest, you hate to worship me. It's the most unbearable thing that you do simply out of a sense of duty. 
But there's no sense of delight. There's no sense of love. They treated it as a kind of hard labor. And again, the application here is not hard to find. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The inclination of our sinful hearts to treat the hour of worship as the greatest possible burden to bear. They sneered in their hearts, the the prophet says. Like a slave who hates his master and begrudges the work he is assigned to do. Here again, we can only fear but rightly guess that this is the state of affairs that prevails in the church today. How many of her ministers and of her laity treat worship, which is uh, spiritual and pleasing to God, as a great burden? Not the good kind of burden uh, that Malachi would impress them with, but the worst kind. Sneering at that which is holy and scriptural. Only the formula today seems to be unlike in the prophet's day. In the prophet's day it was something like this. Let us simply do what God has prescribed, but get it over with as quickly as possible. Today it is something like, everything is a burden to me which doesn't entertain. It wearies me, I sneer at it, I can't stand it, I want nothing to do with it. And so what did they do? They devised new ways to worship God that satisfies their desire to be entertained, lest they be wearied. They only wanted to know if it might weary them a little. And whatever did, they avoided with all their might. And what does God say to such a people? Verse 14, you are accursed. But cursed be the deceiver. What are they cursed for? Their deceit, he says. As though they could deceive God when in reality they had only deceived themselves. Did they really think God was fooled? Calvin says they pretended some religion and thought that was enough. They thought somehow that that absolved them and that this was recognized in heaven. But when you come to worship and treat it like a vain thing, like a burden that wearies, as something you really do hate and wish would be over. Your pretended religion fools no one, and certainly not heaven. Cursed be the deceiver, God says. He sees what you're doing, and he is not mocked. We ought rather, the prophet says, to have feared God. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. That's the final word of the second burden. And in this, dreading to offend his majesty and greatness with a false worship. That's what the fear of God is like. If only these people had realized, and if only people today realized the greatness of God. If they had just allowed themselves to be preoccupied with this. Then worship would have occurred as naturally for them and for us. As honor is to a father from a son. Or reverence to a master from a slave. The thing is more or less automatic. So long as we understand who God is. But men betray themselves too easily with a false and careless worship. Revealing what they really think about God. And how little they esteem his majesty. And so get a sense of his glory and his majesty, his greatness in all the earth, the prophet says. 
Let the fear of God be precious to his saints. Let us come to worship out of a due sense of these things. Let us see the greatness of God. And when you do this, two things will happen. One is that we will see always our puniness in comparison to his greatness. We will never be enamored with our own ideas in comparison with his as though we know better. In other words, we will be humble. Humble enough to say, God, you tell us what it is you want from us. And be content with that. But number two, being duly affected with the sense of his greatness and his glory, we will want to worship him. We will delight to worship him. We won't sneer at it. We won't be wearied by it. We will be uplifted in the truest sense. We will be brought into the very presence of God and get a taste of heaven. We will want to worship him. And when we come... We will give him our best efforts, not our worst. But beyond that, we will lament that we cannot do more for him. Rather than excusing ourselves for our puny efforts, we will lament that they were so puny. And as I close, on the subject of New Testament worship, or or just worship rather, thinking of it in terms of New Testament worship, I, I want to read the words of Hebrews chapter 12. Because you ask yourself, I've been saying a great deal about the way in which God wishes to be worshipped. And we know that God prescribed certain things that he was looking for in the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament has a great deal to say as well. And listen to this. Just as in the Old Testament, so in the New, the worship of God is connected with the priesthood. And so in the great manual of Christ's priesthood, the book of Hebrews, we find in many ways a manual for worship. He is telling us again and again that we ought to gather and the things that we should be doing when we gather and also the spirit which we should have when we gather. And that is what we especially find here. Not a spirit of carelessness, but listen. He says, beginning in verse 18, it's something of a lengthy reading, Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as uh, as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, here is the point of application. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Do you see... 
the writers of the Hebrews says, how much better things are with us than with them. And how as a result, our worship is lifted higher than theirs. You haven't come to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion itself. Where Jesus is, and many others beside him, the saints who've gone before us and an innumerable company of angels. But especially in Christ, whom we find there, we not only get a view of God, which inspires us with a sense of his greatness and majesty, but we are at the same time impressed by his mercy and grace and willingness to accept sinners into his presence and the worship of sinners. Yes, but how ought we to worship him? That is the question. What is considered acceptable worship in a new covenant of grace? The answer is simple. Worship with reverence and awe or godly fear. That is, with a due appreciation for the fact that God is the judge of all and that his divine essence is a consuming fire. A consuming fire which, by the way, consumed the Jews for their idolatry. As though to say here at the close of Hebrews chapter 12, nearing the end of the, of the book, if ever there was a time for carefulness in worship, not carelessness, that time is now. And so let us honor that blood which was shed and which was sprinkled and which saves. And let us worship he who has pacified the wrath of God, even Jesus. And yet in this, let us never think for a moment that God has lost one iota of his dreadful majesty. For he is ever, even now, a consuming fire. And he is to be worshipped as such, even those, and especially by those, who have been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb, even his own Son. Reverence in worship befits the saints, beloved. Always, but especially now that Christ has died. That's what he's saying. Do not give in to a spirit of carelessness and irreverence. Let the blood of Jesus, your great high priest, so arrest you that you are drawn into the presence of God and that there you seek to worship him in a spirit of reverence and awe. I speak to those, he says, who have been washed and cleansed and sanctified by the blood and brought to Mount Zion where God dwells and his son along with them. I speak to those who are participants of a new covenant. And I say, let us all get a hold of this burden along with Malachi, the burden of the prophets and the burden of the apostles after them and not become careless, but careful. For if anyone ever had a reason to be careful and mindful of their worship. Not just the worship that we offer. I mean the things and the stuff of worship. But the spirit in which they are offered. It is us. For worship is the great issue. And it always was. And so it is what must concern us most. Amen. And let us stand uh, together and sing in praise to God. Hymn number 219.